Hey, it's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. Thank you very much for joining me for episode four of the Painless Podcast today with Chris Reuter. The goal for each Painless Podcast, for those of you new, is to connect with and get to know great people in sports, events, cause, and startup marketing. A quick sponsor note, sponsored today, the Bank of America Shamrock Shuffle is offering all Painless Networkers $10 off registration for their April 2nd race. Get shuffling to the shamrockshuffle.com site and uh, hit shamrockshuffle.com slash registration. Use the code PAINLESS. Do it today and get $10 off your registration. All righty. Uh, today's guest is going to be Chris Reuter, as I mentioned. He's the CEO of Spikeball. If you haven't heard of Spikeball, first of all, shame on you, but check out spikeball.com. It's a game of two-on-two with a 12-inch rubber ball and a hula hoop-sized net that sits on the ground. One team starts off serving by bouncing the ball off the net. The other team of two gets three hits to bounce the ball back off the net, and so on and so forth. I'd say picture uh, volleyball and Foursquare having a baby. How's that image? Uh, Back to Chris Reuter today. You can hear from him how, uh, as an aspiring photojournalist, and a uh, essentially avowed non-sports guy, he ended up running Spikeball, a sports company that did $14 million in sales last year. How does he do it? Well, he's an entrepreneur, and uh, he uncovered Spikeball with fellow Kankakee friends, brought the product back literally from the dead, and got to pitch it on Shark Tank even. This is all while building a culture-centric company from scratch with a basic mantra of challenge the status quo and a heavy focus on giving back. Here now from Spikeball's offices on the west side of Chicago, which uh, reminds me to excuse, uh, you may be able to hear multiple Metro trains rolling through in the background here and there, giving us some nice natural sound. Uh, Hopefully it's not too much for you. But uh, okay, so that's out of the way. Let's get connected right now with Chris Reuter. Well, hello and welcome to the Painless Podcast. Got a great guest today, Chris Reuter, the CEO of Spikeball. Welcome to the Painless Podcast, Chris. Tell me a little bit about where you're from. Absolutely. So from Kankakee, Illinois, which is about an hour south of here. Went to uh, public school through eighth grade and then went to Bishop McNamara, which is a private Catholic school for high school. Have a twin sister and an older brother. Um, given my role, you'd think that sports played a big role in my youth, but they actually didn't. And uh, I don't want to say I was anti-sports, but close to it. My older brother was way into sports. He was the athlete of the family, and um, he and I did not have the healthiest of relationships uh, <laughs> as, as kids. There's definitely um, a good amount of uh, uh, pushback between the two of us, to put it politely. Uh, so I think when I saw it, he was so into sports, I kind of wanted to do the opposite. Uh, with that said, I did... Uh, I played a lot of sports. I didn't necessarily finish the season, though. So I, th- <laughs> I played uh, football my freshman year of high school. Uh, played in one actual game, and it wasn't the actual game part. So for the people that aren't good enough, you play in the fifth quarter. Right. So I got to play in the fifth quarter. was playing against a bunch of former classmates that, that were now at Kankakee High. I think I was in for one play. I actually did catch the ball, ran about two yards, got lit up, fumbled. They got a touchdown. 
at practice the next day. I rode my bike to practice, and I was a half hour later or so, and the coach was talking to all 50 or 60 players or whatever. And I walked up, and the coach was confused, saying, like, Ruder, where you been? What are you doing? And I was like, ah, uh, I quit. Uh, so I made a very public announcement. I'm not sure why I did that, but that was my football career. Did similar thing with wrestling, uh, cross country in grade school. Played tennis all four years, was okay, but never really made state. I shouldn't say never really made state. I never made state. Um, so did sports a little bit, but they were definitely not big part of my life and you know didn't like sit and watch sports on tv played like pond hockey and stuff as a kid mm-hmm. absolutely loved that mm-hmm. um but to this day i don't you know I, I can't watch an entire game of really any sport on on tv more than happy to watch the final five to ten minutes the really exciting sport part or you know playoffs of you know i absolutely jumped on the cub bandwagon and that mm-hmm. um but uh, yeah, growing up, not a whole, not a big, big portion. Well, so, so how, uh, how did you end up? You went to Marquette, right, as a yep. as a undergrad, and journalism as a major, like yeah. So it was actually a degree in photojournalism. Oh, wow. um, okay. So that's what I really wanted to get into. I actually did my freshman year at Ohio State, and then transferred into Marquette sophomore year, and wound up graduating from there. And actually, I think I'm guest number four, I believe. So that makes about fifty percent of your guests Marquette grads who worked for the school newspaper. Right. So <laughs> um, I like the uh, the ratios here. But yeah, so wanted to study photojournalism and uh, talked my way out of like the core business class and statistics and stuff like that and just loaded up on more um, art classes, took some class or uh, photo classes. A lot of people will do, you know, a semester abroad during their undergrad. Um, I actually did a semester in Maine where I studied uh, documentary photography. Um, wow. So did that for fall semester. I think it was in 96. Um, and yeah, thought I was going to go into photography and, you know, be that, you know, that dream job of, you know, National Geographic or working for a big newspaper or something like that. And then uh, come graduation time, there was actually a full-time photographer job open at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Hmm. Um, And uh, somehow I learned that they had over 700 applicants. It was trained professionals who had been in the industry for, you know, 15, 20 years that I'd be competing against. And I had a mediocre portfolio, but had no experience really, you know, just kind of college shooting and stuff like that. So um, I kind of realized how steep the climb was going to be if I actually were to follow that. Um, so graduated from Marquette, uh, moved to Chicago for about a year, and then with a friend moved to San Francisco. And he was a good friend uh, from uh, the semester I did in Maine, and he was a writer. I was a photographer and the general idea was, hey, let's go out there and let's just start doing some stories and freelance and see if we can sell them to newspapers, magazines, etc. And unfortunately, when we got out there, I was all gung-ho and started hunting for different stories in that and he had no real interest in uh, doing really anything. Um, so <laughs> That's he, not, That doesn't make for a good partnership. No, it, it, it was a little <laughs> difficult. So he wound up moving back home to Boston, I don't know, after four or five months and I had to pay the bills, so I wound up getting a job in sales with a newspaper called SF Weekly. It's kind of mm-hmm. like the reader here. Right, yeah. Uh, basically just selling ads, and that's where I sort of discovered, okay, I have a knack for sales and, you know, was one of their top guys and did really well, and uh, that's sort of where I put photo, photojournalism in the rear view, and I was like, all right, if I do well at sales, I'll have money, and I can actually do photojournalism as a hobby. So you came to that realization pretty early in the... 
Yeah, yeah, I was, I don't know, 23, 24. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, did SF Weekly for probably a year or two. And then, um, yeah, saw an ad for this bike ride. It was a fundraiser for the Lung Association. And uh, you ride your bike from Seattle to Washington, (laughs) D.C. It was a 48-day ride. I think you averaged, I don't know, 70 or 80 miles a day. You camp every single night, and you're riding with uh, 100, 120 people. Uh, so you basically have to raise X amount of dollars, and once you do that, then the Lung Association will take care of all the logistics and all that sort of stuff. So signed up for that, and then, you know, I was liking SF Weekly, but I was like, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to do this forever. So uh, the plan was I'd raise the money for the Lung Association, quit my job at SF Weekly, have fun that summer doing the bike ride thing, go back to San Francisco and find a new job. Um, so, yeah, it was it was an incredible experience. Did you do that with, when you say we, that it was just the group, or did you have a, any friends that you did that with, or that was yeah. single-minded? I had the idea. I called a, a childhood friend and said, he was thinking about moving out to San Francisco as well, and I said, look, why don't you move to San Francisco, but before you do that, let's do this bike ride, so why don't you quit your job as well? So he did, and then that was Brian Payne, and then a third friend, Ramsey Small. I actually called him, like I did all my friends and family, asking if they could help donate, and he said, yeah, I'm happy to donate, but can I join you as well? So, Oh, really? Uh, there were three of us, all from Kankakee, that did the ride together, and then there were the 100 and 120 others that we didn't really know. Wow. Did you train properly for that? Or I, I did. So the, the fortunate part of living in San Francisco, you've got plenty of hills to train on. So every night after work, um, I would basically ride across the Golden Gate Bridge, go up into the Marin Headlands, and do you know pretty serious climbing training. Um, I'd do probably 30 or 40 miles every night after work. Wow. I think I did one century ride as part of the training. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was it was a, a fantastic experience. Um, and yeah, during that ride, I kind of forgot about this. When I knew I was quitting, um, I started actually calling other places that I wanted to work. I said, "Look, I want to interview for this job, but I can't start until like September." Right. And, you know, most of them said, you know, laughed it off and said, call me in September. Um, But one guy was really intrigued by the story that, you know, I'm quitting a job with no no fallback and I'm riding my bike across the country. Like who in their right mind would do that? Um, So he kind of just strung me along and said, you know what, give me a call from the road. Check in every once in a while and let me know how things go. And... This was before cell phones, like so. I'm oh. payphone, right? Um, actually, I think Ramsey was the only one of us that had a cell phone. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so I'd call him, uh, this guy Rick Klein, every couple days. Just hey, you know, I made it to Montana. Do I have a job? <laughs> ah, Chris, we're still waiting. Call me in a few days. I'm in St. Louis, or you know, wherever. Um, and finally called him from D.C. And he's like, all right, well, how many times did you jump in the van and just kind of like take, take a day off or whatever? And I'm like, not once. I pedaled every single inch. And he's like, all right, you made it? And I said, yep. And he's like, all right, you got the job. <laughs> that was your interview. That was the interview. <laughs> was it 3,300-mile bike ride? <laughs> exactly. And that like really opened my that's eyes. A, that's I was a like, tough interview. <laughs> yeah. And I love the fact that he saw value in that, where other people would take the angle and say, oh, you're just, what? You're quitting your job and just going to have right. fun? Mm-hmm. He saw that. You know, I saw this challenge. I accepted it. I raised, I don't know, eight or nine thousand um, dollars, and he just saw that I had the drive to do something like that. Right. And that, you know, to this day, when I am interviewing people, if they have a quirky story or something, that's where I'll spend eighty percent of the time in the interview, just wanting to try and get to know them. Like, you know, why would you do this sort of thing? You know, these guys, Joel and Scott, who work for us, when I first 
talked to them, they were telling me how they were going mushroom hunting. <laughs> it's like, what is mushroom hunting? I was just intrigued. That's right. basically how the conversation started. Right. And they're now two full-time employees now and just killing it. So, Well, but, it, you know, we're laughing about, oh, that's a long, arduous interview, but you showed to Rick that stick to that you, you followed all the way through, you communicated well, you kept checking in with him, so you yep. set all these other examples, and uh, boy, that's, that's impressive. Um, <laughs> so at that point, you, you've done some, a couple different jobs with Microsoft. Is that there, or is there another? Uh, yeah, so moved from uh, kind of after the dot-bomb dot explosion in uh, early 02, I uh, took a job with Monster.com in Cincinnati. So actually, that was another Rick connection. He knew some guys there. So moved to Cincinnati for a year, uh, then came back to Chicago. So I was with Monster for, I don't know, four or five years. we doing sales. Um, took a job with uh, the Xbox division of Microsoft. So was there for, again, I think, four years, something along those lines. You know, did well at most of my corporate jobs, but just, I think like a lot of people, just had no real passion for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a job. It paid well. But, and yeah, starting during the Microsoft days is when Spikeball started. So, you know, had, you know, when we were in the Aon Center, in the basement of it, there's a post office. Right, yeah. Um, that pedway so, down there. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. So I would, there was an entire wing at Microsoft. I can say this now, but there's an entire wing at Microsoft that was empty. Probably enough room for, you know, 40 desks or something, but for some reason it's completely unused. And they had these giant drawers that were about three or four feet wide. Um, so on weekends, I'd show up and I'd load up three or four spike ball sets in each one. And then during my lunch break, I'd print postage, sneak over there, grab them, take the elevator down to the basement, became best friends with the post office workers, um, and uh, we were off to the races. That's, <laughs> wow. But I was hitting my number at Microsoft, so right, I didn't yeah. feel let's, bad let's about... Let's make that uh, clear. Yeah, like, yeah. Still got a good relationship <laughs> with the boss to this day, so... <laughs> you, and you actually... Uh, you know, we'll definitely um, get to Spikeball in a, in a deeper in a second, but then... You'd, you'd actually also went to work with uh, Kip, right, and yep. Live Nation. So you were continuing uh, professionally, isn't the right word, but you had continued doing these full-time jobs, hit, working at hitting your numbers and things like that, and doing mm-hmm. this on the side. Statue of limitations maybe is over, but you know, was looking at those couple of places also like, I'm going to go learn some more from them to apply this towards spike ball. Absolutely, I, mean, I think the thing I learned across all those is just how to sell. Um, and I think regardless of the role you're in, everybody needs to know how to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, you may not, your role as an accountant, you may not have a monthly quota for revenue, but you do need know, you do need to know how to establish relationships with people, how to be self-aware enough to, um, you know, just get things done and just see things from other people's perspective. Uh, so yeah, I was absolutely learning from them while there may, may not have been a whole lot of love for the products. Um, it was a fantastic training ground. So, you know, sometimes I'll like just get in my own head and say, man, it would have been awesome if I could have started spike ball when I was 23. And then I catch myself. I'm like, absolutely not. I was a knucklehead when I was 23. Like there is no way we would have had anywhere near the success we have today. So I feel very fortunate that I had those right. 12 years or so of corporate life. While I didn't love them, I did learn a lot. So Yeah, you could take a lot away from that, yep. but apply that. Even sometimes it's having a manager or a role, uh, but particularly a manager who's not good. You're taking that like, okay, well, at least I know when I'm running the show, 
I'm not going to be that person. So Absolutely. It's, it's, Identifying it's, it's, the it things not that, to do. Right. Uh, there's right. plenty Always of those. Yeah. growing and learning out of that, even if it's not a great situation. Yep. You, you talked about spike ball overlapping with some of these roles. How the heck did that, you know, how were you exposed to it? Because you didn't come up with the game. Correct. How, how did, where, you know. Tell me a little bit about it. I'm fascinated. Yeah, so it was originally around in 1989, 1990. So I was about 14 at the time, um, as I mentioned, from Kankakee. And uh, some of my good childhood friends, the Kennedy family, um, they bought spike ball at a store, brought it back to the neighborhood, and you know they kind of fell in love with it. And my older brother was good friends with Kennedys, and I was kind of the younger brother, so you know, not really allowed to hang out with them or right. whatever, but whatever they did I thought was cool. So they played a bunch of spike ball, and I played a little bit, but not a whole lot. But we'd play over the years, you know, fast forward to 2003, I think it was, me, my now wife, um, my brother, his wife, and two of the Kennedys all went on a trip to Hawaii, and Tim and Pat brought... Uh, this beat-up old spike ball set from the 80s. That's when I first really played it, and that's where the light bulb went off for me. So as we're playing, strangers are walking up to us asking us these three questions. What's that game? How do you play? And where can I get it? And that third question, none of us could answer because, oh, you know, the original company gave up on it. We're not sure what's going on, but you just can't buy it anymore. Right. So light bulb went off, and I was like, all right, I think this is, you know, when they say this is the marketplace talking to you, I think this is it. And that was the first time in like a, a real sport. You know, number one, it was my brother and I versus Tim and Pat. They're twin brothers. Mm-hmm. It was us versus them for the entire week. <laughs> so just tons of trash talking and just great games. And um, it was the first time my brother and I had really competed on the same team. I was going to say. Like I've together. <laughs> like he, I was used to him being my enemy, but it's right. like, wait, we're actually like, and we smoked him like all the time. So um, they're not here to defend themselves. So I'll absolutely go after it. Right. But um, we had an absolute blast on the beach there, and that's where I really got the bug. So we went home and did what, you know, talked about it for a couple of years and, like, did nothing. We're just, like, you know, after a couple of beers late night, it'd be like, oh, you know, we really should see if we could, like, maybe, like, do this. And So did. really, it percolated for a while. It wasn't yeah. like you went home and got on the phone the next day and... Yeah, so huh. we'd thought about it forever, and I finally got sick of that and said, all right, guys, I'm going to call up some attorney friends and see if, you know, can we legally do this? Like, I have no idea how this sort of thing works. Um, so that's how things got started. You know, we learned that the trademark can ex- had been expired for, I don't know, 10, 15 oh, years. Oh, really? There wow. was never a patent, so the product itself was never protected. Holy cow. Um so, you know, wanting to do the right thing, we did track down the inventor and said, you know, we're, we're thinking about bringing this thing back to life. What do you think? And never really got a straight answer. We're, wasn't sure exactly which way things were going. So we went ahead on our own um, and officially incorporated in, let's see, it was like October of 07 or something like that. Hmm. Um, got the trademark. Cost us, I think, all of $800 or something like that. Um, chipped in about $100,000 between me, my brother, my cousin, and a few of the other childhood friends. Um, and yeah, I ran it by myself. Well, yeah, so we raised the money. Uh, that was enough money for about 1,000 units, build a website, you know, get all the paperwork done and all right. that. And then in June of 08, uh, we flipped the switch and we're officially in business. Walking through your office space over here and seeing the the uh, com- combo set, I want to make sure I'm calling them right, yep. the combo and the pro sets and the packaging and, and all that stuff, uh, how, how, uh, how great it all looks and where it's at right now. How would you, did you even know besides, I mean, obviously the legal stuff, smart enough to put that in place, protect yourself, incorporate, figure out the investment. 
piece. But then how did you prioritize what, you know, of everything from packaging to, you know, did you say I'm going to go to small retailers? I've got a, or your goal is I'm going to go after the targets and Walmarts and Dick's Sporting Goods or whatever, because that's where it's at. And I'm just going to go all in on that. How did you, and also I want to hear, and I'll shut up and listen, but the, the, you, you were a photojournalist, basically, right? Like you mm-hmm. avoided taking the maths and science classes and things like that, which I empathize with. How did you start to figure that stuff out? It seemed like that could be overwhelming of, from 20 different angles. Absolutely. So um, I, I knew really nothing about it. You know, To that point, I, I've, I've never taken a business class, uh, never taken an accounting class, um, and have never run a business. I've always been a very small cog and a very big wheel. You know, I was one out of 100 and some odd thousand at Microsoft, and same right. with Monster and those. Um, but I think I'm a very practical, do- practical guy. And it's like, all right, if something needs to get done, I'll just do enough research to figure out how to do it. Or what I still do a lot to this day is I'll just send notes to strangers on LinkedIn or Mm -hmm. a tweet to somebody saying, you seem to know what you're talking about in this around this topic. Can I buy you a cup of coffee and just pick your brain a little bit? Um, Vast majority of people ignore, but a few people do reply. And I learned a lot from that. Um, And, you know, those first five years when I was running it by myself as, you know, a side job, you know, I'd come home from Microsoft, hang out with my wife and three kids. They're in bed by 830 or so. Spike ball work starts at that time and then goes until one or two in the morning. And that was pretty much the cycle for about five years. Um, So it wasn't like I had, I didn't really have an option to like, oh, you know, our taxes are, our Illinois state taxes are due on this date. I don't know how to do that. Um, I tried figuring it out. Mm-hmm. I failed. So I was like, all right, I need to find an accountant or somebody or, you know, customer service uh, uh, help desk uh, tickets. Like it used to just be email me directly and I'll help you out. And that started and it worked great until the volume got to be too much. And OK, what do I know about implementing customer service software? Absolutely nothing. Right. But I just went and just tried to self-educate and learned other, tried to reach out to other consumer companies that I knew had a high volume of tickets. And okay, do you like Zendesk? Do you like Help Scout? Do you like these other providers? And then just picked one. You know, same with our e-commerce. Our first spikeball.com was a custom-built website. It cost a small fortune, and but that was the norm back then. Right. That's also right. That's not because you necessarily didn't know what you were doing, that was also the way that it had to be done at that point. Now there's more options. And Absolutely. And whatever the, the, the topic may be, um, there's always somebody out there that knows better than me. So I want to reach out to them and just learn from them. Yes, I'll make the, the ultimate decision. Um, but you know, in your experience, when you were trying to find a new e-commerce software, what was good for you? What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? And just that general... Um, wanting to learn from others, I think has served me very well. You know, you'll see some other entrepreneurs that are starting companies and they sort of beat their chests and kind of, you know, there's, there's some, some ego issues there. And, um, I think for the most part, I've not suffered from that. And I, um, am the first to say, look, I've never done this. I feel incredibly lucky with what we've accomplished thus far. Um, but I have so much more to learn. And, um, you know, a line that I heard a while ago that I love is, um, try to be interested and not interesting. Hmm. And in order to be interested, you need to ask questions. If you want to be interesting, you're telling everybody how great you are and whatever you've accomplished or whatever. 
But if you show up with whatever conversation it is, wanting to learn from the other person, mm-hmm. um, number one, that's going to help you build or establish a relationship with that person much quicker than if you just show up kind of saying, you know, here I am, here's all that I've accomplished, and here's why I think I'm so great or my product's so great. Um, trying to just pull whatever it is from the other person um, I think works really well. It's a little dis- it's a little bit disarming to other folks, but it's because you end up getting used to a lot of people coming trying to be all sizzle uh, yep. to be like, oh, he, he just just want to have a conversation. He's interested in learning. He's not trying to show he's smarter than me. He's actually admitting he's not or something. And, oh, look, I, I can actually help this guy out. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's, I think that's kind of a Midwestern or Chicago-centric kind of a thing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good thing in terms of networking and connecting with people. Um, so who was your first hire? Like, how did you also prioritize that? Was it selling? Was it oper- you know, operations and fulfillment? What... Yeah. So we had, to this day, we still have a lot of like part-timers, whether they're college or people fresh out of college that are doing some marketing for us or working trade shows. So we had a lot of that. Our first full-time employee uh, was Scott Palmer, who's now our COO. Um, I posted a job, I think it was 25 bucks on builtinchicago.com. And it was for a customer service position. And the plan was, I was still a full-time employee at Live Nation. And I oh, thought okay, so this is at that point. Yeah, so I was. I think this was 2013. Yeah, um, so I was thinking that okay, we were going to have a full time customer service person while I was full time at a day job. Right. Somehow trying to uh, manage them. So Scott applied to it. Uh, we met at uh, I think it was Tazo Tea. I forget the name of the place on Michigan Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, supposed to be a 30 minute coffee meeting. Turned out to be like a three hour meeting. Um, told the boss I had a long meeting I had to go to. Um, and yeah, we just hit it off. And Scott, you know, after he dug behind the, the scenes and kind of learned what we were up to, he's like, yeah, you don't need a customer service rep. You need an operations person that can really start cleaning things up. Because, you know, at that point, the entire company, for the most part, was run via email. Um, right. And there was just and no... How many, you talked about you started with a thousand units. What was... You know, roughly, how many were you doing in a in a month or in a year or something like that at that point? The volume, I don't know off the top of my head, right. but by the end of 2013, um, well, actually by October or whatever it is, uh, right before I quit my day job, uh, we hit a million dollars in revenue that year. Wow! With zero full time employees. <laughs> I was going to say, right? You did not. That's still with no staff yep. other than you working. 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. Yeah, so at that point, my wife and I agreed, okay, it's safe to quit the day job and go full-time. So that's what I did. Scott did at the same time. Actually, Scott beat me by one day, so he was technically the first full-time. I think he started on Monday, and I was on Tuesday. Um, So, yeah, he started as, I don't know, director of operations or whatever, but then realized, all right, quickly, all right, he's he's our COO and has done just an amazing job. Like, to see, you know, we are... You know, we just hired our 17th person. We did uh, right around 14 million last year. Um, wow! Incredibly lean. One of our guys ran the studies. I gotta, I gotta uh, dig a little deeper. But if I read it right, we did more uh, revenue per employee than Google did. Um, oh so, uh, yeah. Well, and you're going from roughly you said about one in 13, one million to 14, the end of 16. Yep. Yep. Wow. So, yeah, we've been on the Inc. 500 list twice, you know, 500, one of the top 500 fastest growing private companies in the country. Um, and 
And yeah, and it's been just this, let's figure it out. Like we have one person on staff that I was actually in sporting goods industry before huh. they came here. The rest of us, a lot of the people, this is their first job out of college. I think our average employee age is 26 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm 41. So if I weren't in the mix, the average age yeah, would be go way down. 23 or something <laughs> like that. Um, but you have, you have two, we talked about this, um, I'm pretty sure this was before we were recording, was you've got seven people here based in Chicago yep. in this office essentially here in the West Loop, and then another 10 elsewhere around the country. Yep. Yeah, so big, you know, firm believers, and we don't necessarily care where you live or where the work gets done, just as long as it gets done. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had a few employees, once they graduate from college, they come here for three, four months, and then they move back home or wherever they want. Um, some employees have never worked from Chicago and, you know, we've got two people in New York, two in Pennsylvania, um, one in Dallas, four, I think in California, um, and then one getting ready to move to, uh, Nashville. So, um, very spread out group. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks, when they hear that, they're like, oh my God, how do you know that people are actually working or getting their stuff done and not just hanging out all day? And, like, well, I think we hire the right people. Like, Right. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. It's just if somebody has that intrinsic drive, if we know that they genuinely want to figure something out or a, a achieve something, then whether we're looking or not, they're going to do that. You know, they're when they have when they have their spare time, it's not necessarily, oh, I can't wait to go lay on the couch and just like, no, they're doing stuff and wanting to accomplish things. So that's that's what we're looking for when we're interviewing people like, right. um, do you have that? intrinsic drive that just want to get better at whatever the topic may be. Well, how do you, besides, or maybe this is the biggest piece you talk about when you're interviewing people, interesting stories, what are they interested in, what what really is making them tick? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing that's a big part of figuring out, like you said, do these guys have that intrinsic, do they have that drive, do they have that inquisitiveness? A lot of it comes from that. How much of it is, I'm, I'm also assuming they're, like you said, they're graduating school and coming to work that they've they've ran a program on campus or something so they're almost you know or were an intern like how are you identifying people so in the early days most of our hires were people we had met at tournaments or just from the general community um so you know like skylar and sean uh they both were students at uh, chico state in california so they started doing some promoting there and then it came time for them to graduate. Um, I was like, all right, guys, you know, we don't necessarily need people in Chico, but if you guys were going to move to Southern California, we'd love for you guys to start doing some promotional work down there. And it was all 1099 stuff. So I was like, all right, we'll pay you, I don't know, hourly or by the week or whatever. Um, so that's how we got to know them. Uh, Joel and Scott were two early hires as well. They're the ones that they had somehow stumbled on Spikeball, I think, on campus at Belmont and Nashville. And they reached out saying, yeah, we'd love to kind of help out. Do you guys need help with customer service or whatever? And I was like, yeah, actually, if you guys, let's do customer service. And they're like, they're the ones that said, okay, but we're going mushroom hunting for a few weeks, but (laughs) we can do that. I think they mushroom hunt by day and do customer service by night at a coffee shop. Really? And just the fact that they, number one, that they're quirky enough to say, all right, we've got some downtime. Let's see if we can actually make some money mushroom hunting. It's like you go find these super rare mushrooms and go sell them to high-end grocery stores and you can make good money. Right. They didn't, but that was the goal. (laughs) Um, But I didn't care. The fact that they were just intrigued by that. Uh And then they also had the drive. You know, they didn't say, 
all right, well, we're going to go do this and then we'll help you when we come back. They're like, you know what? We'll find a coffee shop with Wi-Fi and we'll just find a way to get it done. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like your bike ride, checking in with the calls. Absolutely. Right? I mean, absolutely. And I didn't have to come up with that. Like they came up with it and said, here's, here's what we're going to do. Um, you know, this woman, Christina Coppola, who uh, we just hired a few months ago, she had been to a bunch of tournaments, had become part of the community. She basically did like a mini like side project for us for like a couple months studying and building um, uh, some programs around college spike ball. We saw the level of work she did. She was a great communicator. She had a great ability to analyze her own work. So at the end of the project, uh, I was blown away by just her ability to say, here's what went well, here's what didn't, uh, and here's what I'd do differently. And we didn't really need to interview her after that because we had already worked with mm-hmm. her. Um, Jack Scotty, who heads up our tournament business, uh, he came on board a little under a year ago, and he had been running his own spike ball tournament for two or three years, and it was known nationwide as this is the best-run tournament and the biggest tournament. And I'd gotten to know him through that, so when the opening came up, there was no interview process. I just called up Jack and said, do you want this job? Actually, I think I texted him. It was the first time ever we had made a job offer via text. Oh, um, so he accepted via text. So I uh, absolutely love challenging the status quo. Mm-hmm. That's one of our, um, uh, something we really focus on here, one of our values. Um, and I want people to look at things through a little different lens. And I think our, our style of hiring and the, like the questions we ask and just the general job descriptions People can tell that a real human wrote those. Oh, to- uh, totally. I-, I love them. I mean, that's where I first know them. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the, from painless networking and the newsletters and, and stuff, when I would get them from you, I'm like, this is, this is brilliant. This is, <laughs> this is standing out. Do you write those, or at least you used to write those, I'm assuming? Yeah, I've written most of them now. Scott Palmer's helping. Nick Gonzalez, who's on our marketing side, he joined us from Wilson. Uh, he's writing some of them. Um, you know, in general, the... The tenor I ask our team to take when communicating with people, just anybody, is write to them as if they're your friend. I don't want to see much formality. Um, you know, so if you're replying to customer service tickets, uh, don't reply with hello. Reply with hey. Uh, unless the customer's upset. If the customer's upset, then sit up straight, right. be very formal, and just right. focus on fixing the right. problem. But, you know, if you look at our social media, look at anything, like it's very laid back, casual, and it's mm-hmm. the way you would text or email a friend. And just that humanity, uh, you know, you know that there's a real person behind it, and hopefully that'll allow you to to, uh, uh, to, to bond with that or just kind of realize like, wait, this is, I kind of like the general tone of this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not someone, a, a faceless person in the marketing department that's just churning out something saying how great our widget is. Um, right. But that's that along with the whole understanding the business side is very interesting to me too that uh, you know where did you without I mean it's in spite of not taking the classes and I'm not saying that's I I would agree (laughs) with you that that's not the answer but where did you think that intuition about understanding asking questions was important understanding that creating authentic culture would be the buzz word for it but you know that that seems to be just so woven through what you're doing and it seems to be natural which is also why it works but where does that come from yeah like i i took a sales training class uh i think it was when i was at monster um and the instructor just kind of made a passing comment i don't know why but it really stuck with me and it was basically just like you know people love talking about themselves and if you can ask people questions about them 
then your ability to bond with them is going to go through the roof, Mm -hmm. which then will make your job of selling to them that much easier. And I don't know why, but that hit me like a ton of bricks. And, you know, more often than not, you know, I'm I'm at a party or something and I'm talking to some guys, 98% chance they're talking about sports or whatever last night's game was. And I don't really know who played. I don't know who the great players are and all. But if I ask questions, I can become a part of that conversation. Oh, Cubs played so-and-so who last night? Oh, who pitched? Da-da-da. I've been watching a little bit. Is he having a good season or not? And that just you know keeps it going and allows me, even though I'm not, I don't know a whole lot about that subject matter, I can just bond with them. And so that's where that came in. And um, I'm not exactly sure where the focus on just authenticity is, just maybe that I just didn't know any better. And, um, you know, as far as the business education, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a part of a group called uh, the Junto Institute, um, and that's been awesome. So we started that in early 2014, and that's that was teaching a decent amount of the business fundamentals, but also a lot about emotional intelligence and, you know, your uh, self-management and uh, self-awareness, et cetera. So that's been a really good education for me and uh, along those lines. Um and, you know, it's kind of the exact, I, I consider it like a practical MBA. Um, and, how did, and how did you get in touch with that group? Did you seek them out? Did they seek you out? Or how, you know, how did you learn about them? I believe it started through a random LinkedIn note. So I sent a note. One of your, hey, can we connect? Because I'd like to. Yeah, but it wasn't to them. It was to, oh, really? so Junto was started by a guy named Raman Chada former professor at DePaul, uh, taught, uh, taught business there. And one of his former students, his name's blanking me right now, but I got connected through him and was just kind of picking his brain on a few things. And he said, you should meet with Raman. He's a really good dude. And so Raman and I got to know each other before Junto existed. He created Junto and then said, you know, Chris, I really think this would, this would benefit you considering where you and the company are. Um, and I kind of brushed it off, but then he pushed a little bit, and I talked to a few people that just graduated from the program, and that's where I was just instantly sold. And I was like, all right, this is exactly what I need. You know, I have absolutely no training. It's not like I've started companies in the past. I know nothing about marketing, um, business in general, and all that. And, and I'd say the final element of my education is I am just an absolute news and just business news freak. So I absolutely love, like... Inc. Magazine. Um, I'm a Twitter junkie. Um, you know, read cranes and just that's what I love. Like I read nonfiction books um, and just learning through other people's stories is a, right. a big portion of it. I would be remiss too. I, I think the Shark Tank thing is fascinating. Like, how did that come about? Yeah. So for years, I'd always wanted to go on, but I never applied because they used to have a rule that says if you get on the show, regardless of whether you do, do a deal or not. You have to forfeit, I think it was either 5% of the company or some level of royalties, basically in perpetuity, in exchange for the exposure. So I was like, all right, that's too rich for my blood, so I'm not going to go on. Read an article that Mark Cuban said that rule is keeping a lot of really good companies from applying, so he forced or basically pressured the producers to eliminate that rule. So once I heard that, I had remembered that I went to some conference or presentation where... Um, 
some guys that were on Shark Tank uh, presented. So I emailed them and said, hey, you know, I met you about a year or so ago. I'm thinking about applying. Can you introduce me to the producers you worked with? You know, because I was getting ready to buy a ticket. They were doing like an open casting call in Atlanta or something like that. And I was like, I don't want to go stand in line for like 12 hours and then maybe not even get in. So is there a back door I can sneak in? Of course. Um, So he replied immediately and said, yeah, absolutely. Here's my guy. And um, so we thought we were going to interview a meet or you know, like the, the guy saw some videos of spike ball said, yes, this is great. It'll be very, uh, uh, attractive on TV and very physical. And, um, uh, so we thought we were going to get on and then that guy said, yep, sorry, not going to happen this year, but next year you're good to go. But email me in a couple months. So we emailed him in a couple months and he no longer works there. Uh, <laughs> so we're like, oh. So we kind of started over, but through the grapevine, found another group of producers. And, you know, it's basically the first couple of rounds are you standing in your kitchen, holding the iPhone, doing a selfie video, practicing your uh, pitch. Um, and they just want to see, like, you know, are you, you know, are you completely nervous or are you, uh, can you actually hold a conversation with people? Are you interesting? And, you know, you may have the world's greatest company, but if you yourself aren't that entertaining, they're probably not going to want you on. Um, and yeah, did enough rounds of that and then, you know, flew to New York and we had some friends that worked for ESPN at the time that really knew what they're doing with, you know, their, their camera guys. So, and they had access to the ESPN camera locker. They had the key that it, the key itself. So we went to Central Park and filmed like the final round of video there. Um, oh, cool. And that was our official submission. Um, we got in and then eventually they said, um, you know, every time you talk to them, they're like, look, just because you made it to this next step does not mean you're going to be on. So, you know, heavy disclosures everywhere. We were invited to film, I think it was in September of 2014. Um, so went out and filmed and it was awesome experience. Um, and then when you finish filming, they say, all right, thanks. If you're going to air, we'll call you two weeks before it airs. If we never call you, it's never going to air. So like you just basically spend the rest of your life staring at your phone, like just trying, (laughs) you know, willing it to ring. Um, that was in September. Fast forward eight months, my phone rings and we were on, we were the final segment of the season finale. So we could not have waited longer. We were the absolute last second. Uh So... Um, with that said, you know, very, uh, worth the wait. Um, you know, actually we had a huge party here at the office and there's about 7 million people that watched us that night. Holy for God, about, right. I was going to say, what kind of numbers does that show doing? 7 million. Yeah, it was, it was insane. Um, and Did the you thing see I, a big, uh, an uptick immediately after in sales, I'm assuming. Yeah. Sales went through the roof. Um, <laughs> wow. we've all heard the horror stories of, you know, like the website crashing or not having inventory, but to Scott Palmer and our operations team's credit, uh, they did an amazing job planning for it. So everything went off without a hitch. Um, they had our warehouse at KCTC all set. We had it overstaffed and ready to rock. The postal service knew what was coming. So, you know, I thought of absolutely everything and it went really well. And yeah, the thing I didn't plan for was reruns. So like a few oh. months later, <laughs> we see like a random Tuesday night that we have crazy sales. We're like, what's going on? And yeah, what just happened? they don't tell you when a rerun's going to oh, happen. right. Good problem to have, of yeah. course, but uh, huh. yeah, it was a great experience. Holy cow. And <laughs> how much involvement do you have with uh, Dave and John? Yeah. Yeah, so zero. 
Uh, so we, I did a deal with Damon John on the show, um, but like what happens with a lot of deals, it actually fell apart. So the deal never happened. Um, and that's okay. So we didn't necessarily need the money. It was a nice to have. Um, but you know, when I shook his hand, I genuinely thought we were going to do the deal. Right. But basically he wanted to do a lot of licensing deals. So like one idea was like, uh, Hey Chris, I've got some friends over at Marvel comics. Let's make a Spider-Man branded spike ball set. Got it. I was like, you know, maybe in the future, but you know, right now we don't, we're not a toy. We're not going after kids. You know, the mission of the company is to create the next great American sport. And I don't think putting another logo on our product is going to do it. Um, so we had a few more ideas similar to that where he was looking to go left. We wanted to go right. And it's like, you know what, let's not force a deal um, just for the sake of doing a deal. So, so it was like, and you know, there was no, no hard feelings on either side. It was just like, all right, we, we we're looking at this from different angles and, uh, it was fun and we'll move on. So, but yeah, we still get reruns to this day, which is great. And, uh, still see random people that will kind of do a double take if they see me wearing a spike ball shirt or something I'm like, wait, you're that guy, aren't you? <laughs> so that's kind of fun being a D or E list celebrity, yeah, but uh, getting pretty far down there, but yeah. still, yeah, some recognition like that. Yeah. So what's, you know, next say six months or 12 months window. Absolutely. So we just prioritized a bunch of our marketing initiatives for 2017 and near the top of the list was tournaments. You know, tournaments have always been, um, huge for us, but we're just going to try and polish them up a little bit and, uh, just make them a lot bigger and better. So, and you're very responsive and, in, uh, through the website, anybody's interested, I should say that, that just go to spikeball.com, right. And everything Absolutely. is up there, information on ordering the product, the rules and how to play the game on through tournaments, other ways that you can get yep. involved, maybe on campus or corporate events or those kinds of things, right. That's all there. Absolutely. So the other team, site, spikeball.com is primarily, the product and the rules and, you know, if you're looking for accessories, you know, whether it be like, um, hats, shirts, socks, whatever, uh, USA spikeball.com is the official governing body of the sport. Um, so that's where, if you click on that, you'll see a map of the U S with dots all over it. And that's where all the upcoming tournaments are. Um, we'll have 150, 200 tournaments this year alone. So more or less every Saturday of the year, there's a tournament somewhere. And the cool thing is most of those tournaments are hosted by just random people in their hometowns. We basically have just created the platform for them. Hmm. We help them market the tournaments. If you need spike ball loaner sets for the event, we're more than happy to ship them to you. And if the tournament's big enough, we may actually send one of our staff members out to help you run it. So, but we as a company, we host maybe 20 or so tournaments. So we host the national championship. We just had our national championship in October in Washington, D.C. So there's about four 450 players from all over the country that flew on their own dime to get out there we had um yeah just great representation there we have regional championships here in chicago we have tournaments either at uh, montrose beach or north avenue beach uh, plus a bunch in the suburbs and stuff so it's a nice balance of the community running their own events and then we as a company running ours um but you know, and that's the best form of marketing, right? Every time somebody plays our game, they're usually playing in some public area, a beach, a park, somewhere. Right. Um, college has been huge for us with Christina on board. She and Jack are doing a lot of work around creating our collegiate spike ball league. So now it will be University of Michigan versus Ohio State spike ball teams rather than individuals. So we're going to have our first ever college national championship. Uh, it's not locked and loaded, but it's looking like it may be on Clemson's campus in May, I think, just Very before cool. finals. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of good stuff happening this year. You're big about giving back. Mm -hmm. You know, 
how, where did that come from? And, you know, tell me a little bit about, explain to people what kind of things you do either, you know, I think it's, you're making donations on behalf of employees and then, you know, other ways of giving back. How, you know, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So where it came from, you know, uh, a lot of our employees, everybody's just, they're just rock solid people. And I know they genuinely care for others. So, um, where it comes from for me, I recognize that, you know, I had a pretty happy, healthy childhood. Um, a lot of friends, good supportive family, uh, education taken care of for me. And not everybody got that. And I realized that since I got that, that really set me up for success in life as a whole. And, um, I recognize just, again, how lucky I am for that. And it's like, all right, a lot of people don't have that. So those that don't have that, um, can I maybe help just a tiny, tiny bit to maybe try and level the playing field just a little bit? So in recognizing that, um, you know, we write a lot of checks to different groups. You know, right now, one group we're doing a lot of work with is called I Grow Chicago. They're down in Inglewood. And they've got some guys that would classify themselves that they, quote, used to be a part of the problem. But mm-hmm. they've now kind of... Uh, Looked at, look at things through a different angle, and some of them are now, uh, it's kind of crazy, they're certified yoga instructors really? visiting Chicago public schools, teaching kids mindfulness and just how to like take a break and just, it's awesome. It is such a cool program. And uh, we've been working with them, and I was like, you know what, they're visiting Chicago public schools on the south side. We essentially have zero penetration down there. So how about this? We'll hire you guys. When you're not doing your agro work, we'll hire you to go to those schools and teach the PE teachers and kids how to play spike ball. Donate a spike ball set or sets every school you go to. You're more than happy to give the, the product away. But you know the capitalist in me likes this because uh, we're now getting our product in front of a market that otherwise wouldn't have seen us. Um, and the side of me that wants to do some good feels good because we're now getting money back in a community. These guys are learning how to hold a job. Um, and it's just kind of a win-win. Being somebody who lives in Oak Park area, somebody was, when I said I was talking to you, they said, oh yeah, the, the wrestling team, which has won multiple state championships, they see... Uh, that's a, one of their warm-up exercises is playing spike ball. Absolutely. Like one thing we've heard, I love hearing that story. We've heard, I forget who it was that shared it with me a month or two ago, but they said spike ball is the best tool for fighting downtime. Hmm. So we're hearing from coaches of all sports, whether it be wrestling, um, uh, volleyball, tennis, basketball, whatever, you know, when that wrestling team is going to, uh, a meet, let's say this Saturday, they're going to drive an hour or two. They're going to go to that meet and they're gonna be there for about eight hours. Seven of those eight hours is them waiting for right. the next match. Right. As a parent going to those kinds of things. Yes. <laughs> more like seven <laughs> hours and 45 minutes of those eight hours. Yeah. yeah. And the athletes more often than not are sitting in a corner with their phones, headphones right. on and just doing mm-hmm. whatever. The coach would like them to actually be active and staying warm. So the coach is now well, throwing... And it's hand-eye coordination and it's teamwork and all that, right? It's absolutely. Absolutely. So we're hearing from, you know, uh, last summer, we um, I was in bed. It was like 10 o'clock and all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up. My phone starts blowing up saying, Ryan Seacrest just talked about spike ball on the Olympics. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I finally got a hold of the clip and yeah, he spent about 30 seconds on his main, I think it was NBC coverage, saying how there's a bunch of athletes down in the Olympic Village that are playing spike ball. They brought it with them on their own oh to fill their downtime. And it was like, I forget the clip he showed, it was like a video. I think it was actually the Canadian women's wrestling team. 
that uh, brought their spike ball set, posted it to Instagram, and somehow Ryan Seacrest found out about it. But you, know, you mentioned wrestling. Kyle Dake, who's a big time uh, college was a big time college wrestler at Cornell, won I think NCAA's all four years. Huge spike ball player. Um, we're hearing from you know bands like the band Twenty One Pilots. Uh-huh. Uh, when they're on the road, they have so much downtime. Right. They somehow stumbled on spike ball and they're playing it now. Casey Neistat, huge YouTuber, he's playing it during his downtime. So, um, yeah, that's been and that wasn't something that we like said. All right, let's let's identify this. It's just how people are using it. We noticed mm-hmm. that CrossFit athletes started posting pictures of them. You know, CrossFit. If you go into one of those gyms, there's not a lot of laughing and lightheartedness. It's hardcore competition, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. very stressful stuff. I think I made it past my second CrossFit class and I was done. That's kind of more than consistent me. with my football <laughs> career. Um, but we noticed that a lot of these posts that they put up were getting tens of thousands of views. And we kind of looked and we're like, Rich Froning, this guy posted, how did he get so many views? And we look him up and he's like this world champ CrossFit guy. So we just started throwing a bunch of free stuff his way. And I had a call with Reebok the other day to talk about a partnership with them and their CrossFit efforts. We did something with them last year. So. Um, it's like, how do we identify these fires that have been lit and then just pour gasoline on them? So CrossFit, working with them was not our idea. We do a lot of work with Ultimate Frisbee teams as well. Yeah. That, yeah, that wasn't our idea. Sense. It was, you know, during the first five years, every time, almost every time a customer would buy something, I would reply with a personal email saying, thanks for buying. By the way, if you don't mind me asking, how'd you hear about Spike Paul? And we heard from a bunch of people that talked about Ultimate Frisbee. None of my friends played Ultimate. I've never played a game of Ultimate in my life. But if you go to really any Ultimate Frisbee tournament in the U.S., chances are really high you're going to be people filling their downtime on the sidelines playing Spike. We're running out of time here. Is there anything else that I didn't touch on that you'd want to talk about? The driving force behind us, again, is our is our community. So, um, you know, I don't know if that works for others that are listening here, but that's been a lot of what has worked for us and, you know, you know, when we came up with the pro set, uh, which we released about a year ago, and it's been doing really well, that wasn't our idea. You know, we put up a post to the Spikeball community on Facebook and said, you know, pretend you're a Spikeball product designer. What does Spikeball 2.0 look like? And all the descriptions that came back were more or less talking about some higher end, more sturdy, stronger, better uh, equipment. Our ranking system, you know, we have a national ranking system. We have over 1,500 teams ranked right now. That wasn't because people said, or that wasn't because I said, you know, a ranking uh, system would be great. It's because we saw all sorts of friendly trash talking on social media about people saying, I'm better than you. And, you know, the New York team may never play the California team, but how do we actually know who's better? So we saw that there was a need for that. So we created it. So it's, it's being mindful. You're keeping your eyes and ears open and yep. not being predetermined of a direction you need to go or that there's one set way. Absolutely. One set answer, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, I think this is uh, this has been a great chat. Uh, feeling good, every yeah. Thank you for, out. for coming out, and uh, yeah. Hopefully, uh, we'll see a bunch of you guys at a spike ball tournament That's, here soon. Yes, there you go. <laughs> He's always closing. <laughs> Chris Reuter, thank you very much for being the guest this week on the Painless Podcast. Thank you. Well, how is that for a good story? Uh, you want to check out more from uh, Spike Ball uh, and uh, Chris specifically? beyond spikeball.com the twitter handle for spikeball company is simply at spikeball and chris's handle is at spikeball chris 
Well, thank you very much for listening. Please shoot any and all feedback as always or guest suggestions. Love getting those to painlesspod at painless.network. Please join me again next week. My guest will be former Flying Illini and current FS1 and BTN analyst Stephen Bardo. Great conversation about his playing career, TV career, and also what he's trying to do with a new nonprofit he started up. If you haven't listened to the first few episodes, you can also check out those conversations with Nancy Armour from USA Today, Kara Bachman of the Chicago Sports Commission, and TK Gore of CSN Chicago. And until next time, this is Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends. <laughs> <laughs>